0: Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com and find them at FDIC at booth 2540.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit TenkataFabrics.com slash Flex 7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced Technology, only
0: from Tankata Protective Fabrics. TheFireStore.com. Equipping protectors with passion. That's how they operate, and it's how they live. They understand that having the right gear can mean the difference between life and death. Their goal is to get you the gear you need when you need it at prices you can afford. Visit them at FDIC at Boots 110 and
1: 111.
2: Hello there out in blog talk radio land Mike Dugan here with you tonight with my good friend uh, Mike Galliano we are honored and privileged to have with us tonight uh, one of my uh, mentors one of my heroes Chief Vinnie Dunn Chief Dunn was a member of the FDNY for 42 years uh, rising to the rank of the commander of the third division in midtown Manhattan he's authored um, I think nine books now with two more in the hopper on uh, written uh, for the FDNY, Collapse of Burning Buildings, which was on my exams to study, um, Safety and Survival on the fireground. He's written a whole bunch of other books since then, just too many to go through. Uh, Chief Dunn has been uh, a member of the, was a member of the fire department for such a long time and such a great guy. Uh, Mike and I have decided we are going to talk to him about his career. Um, His career started in the 1950s, and we're going to talk about that with him. And, Mike, uh, hey, brother, how is it out on the uh, left coast today as uh, I'm joining you from the uh, right coast, where it is uh, beautiful today. It was a gorgeous day, and uh, hopefully uh, it's
0: going to get – weather's going to keep getting better. Oh, Michael, it is a – this, this is the time of year where I live in Seattle where we get about a week to 10 days of just glorious weather, and it's a big tease, because then we'll move into the latter part of May and into June, and then it's really a toss-up. You know, we'll we'll get cooler again, or we'll get some rainy weather and in anticipation of Fourth of July getting here, and then on the Fourth of July or the day after Fourth of July, uh, there's no more beautiful place to be than where I live, but Right now we're in that stretch and man it is glorious and man, no no better day in the world than to sit down for an hour or whatever the chief will give us and go through what I think most of you who are listening, who have a clue will recognize as truly one of the iconic leaders, one of the iconic difference makers in the fire service, um, a well, I can't say enough about the impact that Chief Dunn has had on how we view the fireground and how we view the buildings and as it relates to fire behavior and collapse and fireground tactics. And, and I know Mike will talk a little bit, probably having had the privilege of working close with Chief Dunn on just a true visionary for, for how you should lead in this great calling of ours. And uh, but I've been getting pings all day from people that just can't wait to to go through Chief Dunn's career and hear, you know, some of the great experiences that he's had. And Mike, I'm just really looking forward to it. I've been excited about this ever since you told me this was going to happen. And why don't we just stop chatting and we'll just let the chief talk? I will say this for those of you listening: um, Mike and I aren't stingy by nature. We really aren't. We're pretty generous. Um, if you would like to ask the chief a question about fire he's been to or, or some of the things that he talks about here as he goes through the stages of, of his career, give us a call, um, 760-454-8852. And as much as we can, we'll put you in contact with the chief. And the only thing we would ask is that your question be, you know, pretty crisp, pretty, pretty concise. Think about what you want to ask because um, we want to hear what the chief's answers are. So Michael, with that. Um, I'll let you introduce your mentor up close, my mentor across the the airwaves, Chief Dunn.
2: Um, Good evening, uh, Chief Dunn. Um, uh, Thank you for being here. Uh, It's an honor to have you on the show. Uh, We've done it a couple times before, but this time I figured we would just kind of talk about your career because your career is iconic, and for those of you who don't know, Uh, Chief Dunn started in 1957, and he was assigned a 59 engine up in Harlem. Uh, I was still learning, trying to learn how to use a toilet at that point in my life, Chief. So, um, you know, uh, peeing in my pants. So um, I just, um, my first question for you is, as we go through your career, is you went to probate school, I think, and then went to 59 engine, go through that with us. Because I know my probie school, when I tell young kids now that I was in probie school in New York city for six weeks and they added a week on it because we needed peace officer training. What was probie school like for you and what was Harlem like in 1957 when you were assigned?
1: Well, Mike, first of all, thank you for this podcast. And um, it's a privilege, uh, you know, to be able to speak to the country's fire service through fire engineering's uh, communication system. I appreciate this. I don't take this lightly. You know, it's a great gift. All right. So let's go to your question. And if you hear me rustling papers, I got all kinds of notes here. But uh, first of all, I didn't go to probie school. I went into the firehouse cold. There were so many of us, Uh they made 300 probies uh that day, uh, February 1st, 1957. And they only had enough uh the room for 150 at the party school. So 50 went to the shops where they did study in there. 50 went to PA where they uh, did holes and shot water all over the, the pier. And then 50, uh, we, you know, they they went to firehouses. But but I did not go to a fire, to probing school. The very first day I reported to the firehouse. I had khakis on. Nobody told me anything. I walk into this firehouse and uh, the officer said, "Jesus, didn't you? Didn't anybody tell you to put work clothes on?" So uh, anyway, so I didn't have any training, you know. And I walk into this firehouse uh, on uh, 180 West 137th Street. I got off the train station on the 35th Street, walked up the 137th and made a left turn up the through the street and uh, I walked up the Seventh Avenue at eight o'clock in the morning and. Uh, I did not see a firehouse. Uh, we had the doors painted green then, and, and the flag wasn't out. And I'm at the corner of uh, uh, 7th Avenue and 137th Street. I look down. I see this thing that looks like a garage. So I said, oh, that's, that's the firehouse. So, I, uh, again, I, uh, I waited. Actually, I didn't want to go into the firehouse early. <clears throat> so I t- take a walk. It was a nice sunny day. I take a walk down to 125th Street. I'm walking in, you know, home, uh, it was early in the morning and I had to go to the bathroom. So I said, let me stop into this bar. I stopped into a bar. I order a beer. I go into the men's room. Uh, uh, I'm in there the urinal. guy comes in next to me. He says, you want a woman? I said, no, no, thanks. I'm going for a job today. So I uh, finished my beer. Uh, I didn't drink the whole beer. <laughs> I just had to go to the bathroom. So I walked back up to, on the 37th street and, uh, uh, I walk in the fire. I, uh, I guess I knocked on a door. I don't think it was locked. I opened the door. There's a guy on watch. I said, I'm the new proby And the guy, he said, go in the back kitchen. So I walked past a uh, van, red van, squad one on it. And I walked past our 36 Mac. Uh, and then I walked into the kitchen in the back. So uh, <clears throat> I don't know what happened. Nobody said anything. So I I'm the new probie. I I said, we were watching television. I sat down and I uh, watched television. Now, I guess I was a little early, 9 o'clock. The officer comes down, covering officer. We got a probie. We got a probie. And he comes over to me. You got a new probie? I said, yeah. He said, Jesus, what are you doing in khakis? I said, well, you know, we didn't go to school. Nobody told us anything. So uh, he said, come on out. We got to fit you with some fire gear. So I try out some boots. It turned out cold. The helmet, you know, we put it on the rig. And uh, at 9.20, we get a run. Yes. So I'm, I'm on the back step of this uh, fire truck shooting down 7th Avenue. And uh, uh, I remember the squad had already gotten there. And uh, 69 engine was first, to, And the garden the squad comes out, his face is all dirty. He said, we got an oil burner fire. You know, one-on-one is all we need. But that was it. So I go back to the firehouse, and, and that was my uh, first day. It was... Uh, uh, on 133rd Street, like I said. We had a 36 Mac, map, 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 and it was cramped quarters. This firehouse was an old 1890 firehouse, three stories. We had the wooden lockers on the top floor. The bunk room was on the second floor with the company offices, office there. And we had the apparatus in the kitchen on the first floor. So uh, typical old 1890 structure. Uh, and uh, some It was cramped. It wasn't built for the squad. So that was a little bit of a conflict. And now let me tell you something. This uh, engine company was there since 1892, and it's five guys or four guys, whatever we had, that came to work, you know, as a unit. So in 55, the squad comes in there. There were fires were increasing. So (laughs) so, uh, the department didn't, we had no, minimum manning staff. Yeah, if you had one fireman, that was it. If you had two firemen, uh, three firemen, that was it. If one guy goes slick, sick, that was it. They would maybe, if they had extras, they'd detail one your company. But if there was no extras, you rode with two men. Uh, so, uh, so so because of the manpower shortage, uh, and we had a big probie class, 300 were going to supplement this uh, manpower shortage. Uh, they made these squads, flying squads, they called them. Brooklyn got one, Bronx got one, uh, uh, and, and Harlem got one. Uh, and I had, is in quarters with Squad One. So they were five guys, manpower, they had no hose, uh, they, uh, they had masks, and, uh, and that was it. They And these guys came from, <laughs> we would call them carpetbaggers, you know they rustled all these guys up from some from companies all over the city. And a lot of them were guys that the companies didn't want, you know, but there were some great <laughs> veterans. And I have to say there were some uh, pretty good firefighters in the squad. I mean, really salt of the earth guys. They may not have been, they may not have been, what uh, uh you say, uh, uh, <laughs> the best, you know, most orderly, but they, they know how to put fire out. Some of these guys... All right, so, so that was it. But there were conflicts there. They didn't stand watch. Uh, when they, they were line stealers, as soon as you got the line up there, they wanted to grab it off you, so you had to hold on to your line. Uh, they had the masks. And when they do, uh, if, they, if they did stretch a second line, uh, they would get and usually get another call and leave the line in the street. So we had to pick up their line in addition to our line. <laughs> Needless to say there was conflict there. But good guys in there, and but 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 you know, in my seven years in that fire, everybody transferred to the squad. Nobody screw. Nobody transferred from the squad to the engine. You know, so and I stayed in the engine. I I was not going to be a trader. I mean, everybody was. Oh, I'm going to go to the squad, and of course they knew the fireman they chose. But I didn't want to uh, go into the squad. I was. Uh, I thought I was not. I was loyal to the engine. I liked being in the engine, so that was it so uh, but, uh, let me just see So i am looking at some notes here so we had uh, we ran in with uh, a lot of fourteen uh, on twenty fifth street a lot of thirty was on thirty fifth street that was a that was a pretty interesting. We used to get details that was sort of like a company associated house, and when they built the new house. In 1960s, they combined 30 truck and 59 engine together with the squad. So we had three firehouses in the, in the, on 133rd Street in the new firehouse when we left this one. But uh, 30 truck was an interesting uh, place there. One of the things you have to realize, there wasn't much drilling. There wasn't much training going on when I came in the department. I mean, I remember the only thing I do remember is this one lieutenant would, would have us half fill up a bucket of water on the apparatus floor, and he'd have us spinning around in a circle, you know, half filled with water, and he would be demonstrating a centrifugal pump, which we had. And, you know, all the swinging of the pail kept the water in the pail, and in the pump, it would shoot it out the hose. So that was the only drilling we did. Uh, and I do remember... They didn't have training bulletins. They didn't have firefighting bulletins. The only thing you would study was the. There were twenty lectures. They had old fire chiefs. Uh, these old guys. I mean, they were most of them were retired, but they had given lectures at training, and somebody recorded them and uh, wrote them down. They were called fire college lectures. So that was all you really had to study. And the best, the best fire college lecture that I saw was. A guy named Bob, uh, the Chief Powers, Deputy Chief Powers, he wrote the lecture, naturally, about uh, tenements. So that was the one I gravitated. There was a lecture on loft buildings, a lecture on ventilation, lecture on many things. But the one on tenement fires, you know, attracted me. And it was written by this great chief I admired, Bob, uh, not, uh, Chief Powers, I don't know what his first name was, but, but uh, it was on tenement fires. So, But that was all you really had to study at the time. And, of course, now there's much, much more where I was studying. And the other thing is, uh, you know, alcohol was a problem back then. You know, uh, today there's zero tolerance for alcohol. You know, they have these inspectors coming around, and if you're tested for alcohol, they'll fire you. But back then, uh, there wasn't much uh, problem. A lot of of drinking going on. And, in fact, the old-timers thought, Well, when you you had a couple of beers, the smoke didn't bother you that much. So drinking was sort of like accepted in most firehouses. And uh, so I do remember I'd done done a lot of partying in the Navy before I came on the fire department. I I was in the Navy from 17 to 21. And when I came in the firehouse that first day, I walked back into that kitchen. First thing I see is it's a black fireman and a white fireman sitting at the kitchen table playing cards with a quarter beer on the table, nine o'clock in the morning. So I said, so, oh, Jesus. So uh, that was, uh, they were both from the squad, <laughs> by the way. Those two firemen, I do two, we Do remember them. They were both squad members. So you could see uh, one of the, the problems there. But uh, my captain was Bob Clark, Robert. Actually, I had another captain, Pilkington. But he was on medical leave. He had lung cancer. And then... Uh, Eventually, I got a captain Bob Clark. So, uh, so that was it. And we did, we we did. It was six story tenements. You looked at that area; there was nothing there, uh, but six story tenements, block after block after block. A couple of stores. Then, if you went down to 125th Street or over on the east side, you got some brownstones, you know. But there was really all new. Most of them new law tenements and uh, building after building it. There were no vacant buildings then. Harlem was a thriving community. I mean, there was uh, uh, all stores occupied. There was a bar up in the corner. The guys used to hang out after work. And uh, uh, there was no problems back in the 50s. You know, there was everybody got, seemed to get along. So uh, but that was my impression. And uh, so let me see. So, again, when, when we did move in with 30 trucks, that was a special there was something going on at Thirty Truck. There was nothing going on in 59 and in the squad as far as training was concerned. When Thirty Truck had Lou Harris was a fireman in that fire company. He became the chief of operations. Mike DeLate was the captain of Thirty Truck. He started the fire to Ladders One and Ladders Two and he, he started Ladders three. But John O'Regan was a firefighter there and he continued Ladders three and Finished the whole bulletin. So, Ladder 30 was a special, there was something special in that bios as far as training. It was, it was a nucleus so of a lot of training. All your firefighting bulletins came from Ladders 1, Ladders 2, Ladders three, four, five. After Old Regan, John O'Regan from 30 Truck, who, who was in 26 Truck by then, wrote Ladders 3. Other guys started writing. Grimes wrote a private dwelling bulletin, a high rise bulletin was written. Uh, they wrote a bullet on road dwellings, so that opened up the 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 the, the uh watershed but it was a a good productive house. thirty truck was very good and uh, uh so I mean my impression there was uh one of the things I do remember i, I think it was sixty two uh Worcester street collapse happened and I came in on a night tour and they said you're going down to uh, lower Manhattan on a personnel van. So they piled a lot of us from the 16th Battalion into a van. We drove down to Worcester Street. Never forget that. I mean, you know, there's that building, hard crops, you know, in a very narrow street and held of acres. And we went up to a uh, building on the, on the other side of the street, uh, an empty, vacant uh, loft building. And we, were, we had a two-and-a-half-inch house, and we threw up the water across the street into the rubble that was smoldering from the Worcester Street collapse, killed four fire patrolmen and two firefighters in that uh, complete building collapse, uh, total progressive global collapse of this six-story loft building. That that sort of like, you know, got to me. I said, Jesus, this job is, that was the first indication of collapse that I really ever saw. So we did a watch line down there. So, um, so anyway, you know, so I was uh, got involved with this pro had who came in after me, Frank Muska. He was a very ambitious kid. He had two, I had two or three months on him, and uh, he said, Vin, you're a veteran. Let's go to school on the GI Bill. We'll get paid for it." So he started me out in Queens College with him. He was going out there. He had already been going there a couple of years. So I, I, you know, so everybody had five jobs driving trucks and vans and, working in, uh whatever. And so I went to school. I got a couple of bucks a month, 30 bucks a month, $60 a month. That was like a part-time job. And school was not expensive. then. My, my courses were $18 a credit. So well, I could afford that. And and that's how I started going to school on a GI Bill. And uh wound up getting an associate degree while I was down there. At um, uh, 62, I got that. And then... You know, guys started studying for lieutenant. You know, and one of the things you, you one of your questions here was, well, what motivated you to study for a lieutenant? And uh, it was a good question. Like, and one of the things that studied that motivated us, Bill, who was a fireman in squad, Bill Grimes, and became the captain of 31 truck,
0: who you know
1: became pretty famous. He wrote that lot is for private dwelling building. He was a pretty dynamic Marine reservist and uh, different, you know, had the military discipline. We saw him get promoted and come back to home as a covering officer. And that was like you'd come up touch him, you know, when he had his lieutenant's outfit. Hey, Bill, how you doing? So seeing somebody get promoted from your firehouse is a very big motivating factor. And I'm sure, Mike, you saw guys from 43 Truck get promoted. He said, "Jesus, maybe I could do that." So that's what uh, uh, we, uh, you know, motivated me and, and other guys. And the other thing is, what really motivates you is watching these officers operate at fires and emergencies. You know, you saw firemen, you know, and officers, you know, you know, good officers take over, you charge, and and that's a stunning thing for a young man to see. Well enough, men. Operate in an emergency situation. So those two things said, you know, I think I want to try to be a lieutenant. And then, of course, you know, the rationale said, well, how can I try? You say to yourself, you know, how could I think I'm going to be, you know, one of those people, you know, who who were leaders of leaders, as you call them. And, of course, my father-in-law was a fireman, a 53 engine, So I had to explain to him, he was an old, you know, Buffalo, uh, how how I dared – open up a book and want to be a lieutenant. So I said to him one night, look, there were great officers like uh, Jimmy Ward was the one he admired. And I said, there's a lot of terrible officers that come through my office, my firehouse. And I, and I said, look, I may not be a Jimmy Ward, but, and I'm, but I'm not going to be one of those stiffs that I see. And there's plenty of room in the middle that I can sit in. So that's how you rationalize wanting to be uh, an officer. So I... Uh, Study, study, and one the other question is uh uh how did you you know, what was your method of studying? And the method of studying is a study group. You know, we got myself and two other guys, this ambitious guy Franklin Muskill, uh, and we got this uh Casey Mitchelson and uh another guy uh, uh to get together and we would come in we we wouldn't come in. We were all in the same group. We would come in if we were not working. And we had certain nights nice to study. So I, you know, I studied with these other firemen, three or four. You needed three to four. Oh, Ray Hill was the fourth guy. So we started this study class in the firehouse. And then in addition to the study class, you went to fire at Delahanty's, like equivalent to fire tech. And now you saw the big chiefs, you know, up in that podium there lecturing you know, 50 or 100 firefighters about how to be a lieutenant. So you you uh, went to, to, to the fire tech courses, you had your study class in the firehouse, and uh, we aced it. I mean, uh, you know, when, when the test came up in the 63, you know, this my class, we all passed it, and uh, we got promoted January of 1964. I had seven years on the job, and and I got promoted to lieutenant. And, you know, very funny. I'm, you know, the, the officers saw us studying and the officers saw the, the marks that we did. And we, we were very, you know, we were shop kids. When we took the test in 70, in 63, you know, we got right on the phone and we started surveying the entire fire department. There was always one live wire in each company. Who knew who was studying and could get estimated marks of everybody in the firehouse that thought they passed? So we actually had a citywide list. So we, uh, in this group, estimated, you know, all this is coming out in January of 64. We estimated we were going to be on the top of that list with our seniority. And, you know, uh, I had used my veteran, I didn't have veteran's brother's best. Well, we estimated we're going to be on the top of that list. And everybody knew that in the fire. So this one officer, Bill Keenan, I don't know if you ever worked with him, Mike, but uh, he was a Korean War veteran, had a, had a terrible experience in the military. But he says to me, Vin, let's, let's, let's you and I start to study. And it was another firefighter. So he's studying for captain. So now I had already passed the lieutenant's test. And there was a chance, you know, being an optimist, you know, I couldn't wind up, There was a, the captain's test was on April of '64. My list wasn't even out yet. It was coming out in January of '64, and there was a captain's test was scheduled for April of '64. I'm studying with this lieutenant and another guy. But sure enough, we get we get the promotion January '64, and we we are eligible to take the test. In April, and we passed the captain's test. believe it or not, so uh, I mean, no no way shape or form did I want to be a captain, but did I passed it uh now I had to learn to be a lieutenant so uh, anyway, I did that. I covered in Brooklyn for a year, and uh before I got a study assignment and the first the first indication of uh you know the seriousness of firefighting was in nineteen sixty two I'm in Kid, uh, so I was five years in the job, and we got a probing from 69 inch. James Rowan. he's covering a 30 day detail in the uh, in the uh, 59 inch. So I bonded with the kid. You know, I was the only one that would talk to him, and uh, it was cold winter coming up. So I gave him my jacket. I had a, a nice jacket, uh, a blue jacket, windbreaker jacket. So anyway, before James Rowan gets tangled up in a hose in a tenement. And he dies, you know. So uh, my buddy, uh, one of the guys, two of the guys from the squad, you know, I was not working, but they came back and said, you know, you can't move a lifeless body. There's no resistance. They had a hose stream being shot over their heads, and they had to get this kid untangled from the hose line he was t- and And uh, they got they got him out. Of James Wayne died in 62. That was my first whole sub visit to the. To the reality of the fire service, and uh, so uh, so so that was, that was basically it. And uh, it was a good firehouse. I learned a lot there. You know, I put my fires out. I, I you know I got when you get to the nozzle. And uh, my first fire was on 138th Street. I was the nozzle man with Bob Clark. And, you know, I not, it was a just, <laughs> back two rooms of a tenement fully involved in flame. We, we didn't have masks. And we moved right through that room, boom, 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 knocked the fire down. We went up the rear fire escape, and there was no fire up there. But uh, so that was an exhilarating. I, I remember that. So once you do that, you say, you know, I could be a lieutenant. I could be an officer. Once you do the job, uh, and so that gave me confidence. And then another fire. I was an acting lieutenant, and we had a pretty big cellar fire, you know, a lot of flame, and we knocked that down. I said, well, geez, I could be an officer. So... So well, that was my uh, my uh, my, re- my beginning in '59, and plus, so I just started going to school, and I got an associate degree in '62. That was a, I almost had a nervous breakdown because in '62 I'm studying to get the, the last courses for this associate degree, and I really wanted to start studying for lieutenant in the fire department. You know and then I remember in one of my side classes he said "The worst frustration you can have is when you have two things you want to do, so that was certainly too th- I wanted to get that degree, and I wanted to uh, uh, uh get the on you for lieutenant and of course, the other thing you gotta mention so I'm a kid in fifty nine age and I start to go to school and i I can't even type so now." To, to get a mutual, you have to type this half a letterhead up. Who are you gonna? What tour? Who's gonna work for you? I can't even type. So we had this fire chief in the 16th Battalion. You gotta mem- you gotta mention this guy Artie Laffa. He was a, and he became a deputy. Everybody knew him from the first of these. Audie Laffa uh, says to me, kid, uh, you know, no chief would ever talk to a young fireman, but this guy did. So so I said, you know, I would send him my badly typed uh, request for a mutual to get to go to school. So all the Chief officer says to the kid, don't worry about it. Put all your mutuals. We write them out. He had a form. Right away, the chief makes up a form for you to handwrite. He knew the problems of typing. He couldn't get access to the typewriter. There was one typewriter in the building. So, uh, so he, he makes up a form, sends it around. We just got to write our dates in. And he said, put all your mutuals for the month in an envelope, send them to me. So um uh, uh was a big asset. And I do another story about this battalion chief in the 16th Battalion. I'm in Proby School, and uh, with this guy, uh, I think his name was McLaughlin. All I remember is we were the first class that was prohibited from working outside you couldn't get a second job. They stopped it in 1957. If you had one, you probably could work. But this new class is going to make $7,000 a year, and they're not going to have to work on the outside. So we prohibit anybody from working on the outside. but so this kid in pulmonary school said to me, "McLaughlin," he says, Jesus, I had a job making false teeth, making 60 bucks a week, and I can't do it anymore. So we go to get our assignments. I get 59. He gets 69 injured with Artie Lafa as the commander up there. Audie so Artie Loffa, this guy's father must have died on line of duty. And he gets, He starts to go to school on a GI Bill. And Lafa uh lets this guy go to City College. I went to Queens College. I lived in Queens. He lets him go to City University up there in the hill, in the home. And he says... Uh, his kid wound up going to medical school and working in 69 engine. So Waffle let the guy, let the kid work three night tours and go to school all day long. So he became a doctor. He After he got his medical degree from the university, this kid in Coughlin, uh he he went in and he joined the military, became a lieutenant, you know, first lieutenant in the Army, and became a doctor. So there was a funny story. Uh, who who and thanks to this uh this uh battalion commander Artie Laufa, a uh, legendary guy. So that's what so let's see, that's what uh fifty nine engine was like and, and what motivated me to study was seeing these firemen get promoted to lieutenant, seeing them at fires, and the inspiration of the fire officers yeah, at fires and emergencies. So that was uh uh my my uh, fifty my 59 engine it was a wonderful firehouse, you know, and uh, it, it made me tough. It was, you know, there was a lot of covering offices uh, and it was a, like a chaotic firehouse. It was not too much, uh, except for us studying, us kids studying. Uh, so we didn't see Grimes and those other guys study. They did it at home in tech. But we studied in the firehouse and we hired other firefighters to study, I guess. So uh, anyway, so that was it. So I uh, said, so now my your That's next great. question. What did you say, Mike? Go ahead, go ahead. You I got,
2: said, you, that was you. great, Chief. That was, I mean, this yeah. is what our, our listeners want to hear. This is what they want to hear. I and that was great. Yeah. So, all right. So, so I'm going to
1: continue going on. Do you, you have any okay. other questions? I got your questions here, but you can interrupt if you want to uh should, should I, no, I think mike's going to ask
2: you the next question mike galliano is going to ask you the next question oh, Mike, god go ahead mike
0: oh uh, well chief i i just i just want you to know um you don't have to pause on our account uh we're we're all and i think all of our listeners are sitting just in awe and uh, uh <laughs> i i just want you to i want you to keep going uh this, this is spectacular i mean i I could read the question that you, you were a lieutenant in 33 engine, and okay. your company was at what I think for anybody who's a student of the game um, will know one of the iconic fires in the fire service history, the 23rd Street Collapse. Um, could you talk about that fire and talk about the impact that had on yeah. you and the way you approached the okay. fire service? Okay, let's
1: start in the beginning now. So so now I get promoted from, from Harlem. And uh, I cover in Brooklyn, 36th Battalion, and uh, uh, so I'm covering there uh, from uh, 64. uh, And, uh, you know, and then I'm covering in, I got a couple of firehouses in Manhattan and maybe three or four firehouses in uh, uh, Brooklyn. So while I'm doing that, of course, (laughs) nobody remembers this. But there was a big scandal in the Harlem, in the firehouse, up in 35 Engine. Uh, somehow, <laughs> the newspapers, newspapers get wind of it. 35 Engine was a single firehouse, and they, and they were bringing in ladies into this firehouse. Nobody knows what was going on, but they, they got called down, and uh, big, big newspaper scandal ladies of the night in 35 engine so uh uh that was something and of course poor Adi lafa gets steps up and he tries to make it better but he gets into trouble and he was a very religious guy this guy Adi lafa i mean you know he was the closest thing to jesus christ i ever saw so i you know he tried to help out uh, but he got tainted but never never really uh we all knew how good he was but uh Anyway, so nobody wanted to go back to Harlem, so I'm covering in Brooklyn. I'm saying, geez, I'd like to come back go back to harm. So, uh, but, uh And there's one firehouse I remember covering in, 33-inch one night, for some reason. There was one guy in nine truck. It, it must have been like, you know, it, it happens. You go into a firehouse, and this guy just does, doesn't like it. I mean, I never knew the guy. But, you know, someone said, Jesus, whatever's wrong with him. And he looked at me, and I don't know what it was, but... So of all the firehouses, I'm covering about a year that I don't, I never had any point. I'm trying to get back to Harlem. Anyway, boom, I got comes down on the order without me any, no, 33 engine. I can't believe it. So uh, what happened was this guy, Lieutenant Frank in 33 engine, dies of a heart attack out of fire. So they got to fill this spot quick. So it's so down in Great Jones, three third Street in Lower Manhattan. So I get assigned, and now, you know, I'm saying, oh, God, this is not going to be good. I do remember, so the very first tour, we didn't do roll calls up at home. The very first tour, I'm a lieutenant, 9 o'clock in the morning. I'm up in the office, and I say, hey, lieutenant, come on down for <laughs> the roll call. So I, I shoot down a spiral. No, was it? Was we in a spiral? No, I shoot down from this stupid uh uh, mezzanine office we had down to the big uh, apparent floor. And, you know, I go to this role called 9 And all the guys in this company, 33 Engine, show up, shake my head. Good to see you, Chief uh, Lieutenant. Uh, welcome aboard. And it couldn't be more pleasant. You know, I never got a, a reception like this in any fire that I had covered. So it turned out to be a wonderful firehouse, so, 33 Engine, Great job. Now, you know we uh, we 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 uh, we had to uh we would uh, we rolled out like i used said for the the shelter system if we make a right turn, we going to Health hundred acres if we make it a left turn, we' going to alphabet city you know lower east side a, a b c and d and uh, most of the time we did the left turn to a b c and d um and we were second due to twenty eight engine twenty eight engine was the big uh, alphabet city fire company down there So... They did most of the work. We we were second due to them, and uh, so so that was a a good firehouse. And again, you know, again, you know, there was still no. There was still no much of a, of a restriction on drinking. This this was a heavy drinking fire. Now, now I mean, with a deputy, this is a division one quarter. You think, well, nobody's drinking here. You know, I mean, up in Harlem, there was no chiefs and quarters. So you could understand the guys the drinking. You know, so I go and actually when I come down here, guys were telling me well there was a story that the chief of an apartment uh in the fifties, uh, was at a party down in the cellar of this firehouse and and some, some some woman was sitting on his lap and some news reporter took a picture of him and of course got in the papers and they were they, they summarily Uh, they couldn't fire him because he had passed the test, but they moved his office down to a lower floor into a little small closet like, and he eventually retired. But but that was a funny story that I was, people told about 33 engines. So now I'm there. So the first couple of night tours, uh, I'm sitting in the kitchen, you know, and the chief's there, the deputy's there, and the firemen there, and, uh, they Chief, go, we're going to go downstairs. A captain's going downstairs. Lieutenant, we're going to go downstairs, watch some TV. Okay. And they all pick up their plates and go down there. That's so me and the deputy there. So I'm saying, oh, sorry. So second night, third night, I said, Chief, you don't mind if I go down there with them? No, no, go ahead. You want to be alone probably anyway. So, uh, I go down there. Now I see down there in the basement, they got refrigerators. They got lockers. They got hard stuff. They're drinking. Some guys are drinking whiskey down there. Holy Jesus. So, uh, now, so I go down there every night after dinner. I have a beer, we have cigars, some cheese. I gotta go down there to see who's gonna make a run. I mean, I wanna make sure who's who looks bad, who looks... So I have a, one, one or two beers maybe down there, but... So now I'm drinking, and if, I didn't drink up in Harlem, but here I gotta drink in self-defense. So, uh, uh, so that was it. So, uh, so we had those, uh... And let's see. So, and then of course my hero down there. I, I would go when I went to Queens College. I take this course building construction. And it's taught by this captain Lou Harris from 30 truck, who I feel an affinity to because I'm i 59 engine, and then we moved in with them. But now he's a captain in uh, I think he was in uh, uh, two truck Midtown. And this captain is dynamic. He's a dynamic teacher. I can't, I never saw anybody like him. I would sit on the edge of my seat when I watched and I would listen to this guy talk. So uh, now he's also, when I go to Fire Tech, he also teaches at Fire Tech or Dollar Handies, as it was called. So now I see this guy. Uh, I knew him from Queens College. And I see him teaching promotion classes now. And, you know, I would find out when he'd teach it to make sure i get him, not the other instructors. Well, he was really like one of your first, you know, I never told the guy, but he was a big inspiration because he had such knowledge. And what I liked about him was he was a CV in the Navy, big, rough, tough guy. He, he went to school, the city college on a GI Bill, got a degree, became an engineer, and a guy just knew everything. The guy knew every single thing. You could think of, and he was a dynamic teacher, you know, but it's funny, he had a, he had a little bit of a speech impediment. He was not a good-looking man, you know, but hey, to me, he was like golden. So uh, he's, he's in the first division. So, uh, so I saw him, and I was always training. One of the things, when I went down there, I used to have training sessions. I started training sessions every night until we had to do a drill. And I started drilling as a as a new lieutenant. The reason he had started drilling, we had a division of training that would bring fire companies over there uh, suddenly, and, uh, and they gave us a warning. You you were up. they would identify a battalion, and this division of training would bring them over for evaluation training. And if you didn't know, I put a mask on, but they would embarrass the hell, they would yell at you there. They would embarrass these senior firefighters, so we all knew how to, you know, wear that mask. We knew, you know, we would stretch, we would do searching, with blacked out uh, face pants pieces. <clears throat> so we we were very. <clears throat> I did a lot of training as a lieutenant, did. <clears throat> so you uh, know, of course, I'm trying to impress uh, <laughs> what's, his, what's his name uh,
0: uh, Harris, and you
1: know, so, I, so that was it. So, uh, but anyway, so. I survived there. Let's a walk, building. All right. So that, that 23rd Street collapsed. Now, uh, I, you know, you said, how did the 23rd Street impact your career? It did not impact my career at all at the time. I mean, is I that that fire? I mean, you know, I reported to Riley in front of the building. Joe Priori, I knew Joe Priori from covering from 18-injuns, he to Riley on the other side, standing at the other side of his command post. And then a guy comes out of the drugstore, says we got fire around a baseball. Uh, Riley says to Joe Pryor, get 18 inches, get a line in the store. 33 inches, get a line on exposure to him. That was it. I look in the drugstore, the light's on. There's a light whisper, white smoke. He sits the with fire, but no fire. here let's get around what he actually did. So anyway, they go in, Riley goes in. I watched uh, uh, this lieutenant from uh, seven Truck put on a mask go in there. And uh, so that was it. They all went in there, and the floor collapsed, that smoke condition, uh, and the baseboard. What they didn't realize is we had heavy fire on 22nd Street, and the basement had been broken through and extended underneath the drugstore of 23rd Street. So when they... We had a heavy fire at 22nd Street Cellar, and they went in to check the baseboards. They had a terrazzo floor, and when they went over to look at the baseboard, a big 35-foot chunk of the terrazzo floor collapsed into the fire. I mean, so they fell right into and the fire was burning drums of locker, thinner varnish used to make frames. So they were incinerated immediately. And two of the firefighters, the drivers from the third division and seventh battalion, Rudy Kaminsky, I knew, came in the job. With they tried to run out when the floor collapsed and a big ball of fire came out at them and burned them to death on the sides of the store. Their bodies were found on the floor and killed by the ball of fire that came out. Now Rudy Kaminsky, you know, I knew him. I knew Joe Priori, and uh, but. Uh, you know, we got the bodies out the next morning. I went home. I, uh, you know, I remember saying I, I was tired. I jumped right into bed. My three-year-old daughter comes in, jumps in with me, cuddles up with me, and I think, well, there's a lot of kids who are not going to have fathers to cuddle up to. I fell asleep. I wake up the next day. I, you know, I went to the funeral. I went to to work. I, I didn't think of it. I mean, I, I was on the captain's list. Uh, and, you know, and I was a, I was going to be the chief. I mean, and I had a I had a plan, so I, it didn't. I did not think about that until ten years later. You know, I'm up in the Bronx there, and I start to write about building collapse, and then building co co-op building collapse, and uh, you know, I get a job with Dennis Smith in his magazine, and I'm writing about building co-ops, and the editor says to me, Vince, you got to stop writing about building collapse. I said. I'm going to stop writing if I can't write about building colors. So, what happened, I guess, is that I just suppressed that for 10 years. And then 10 or 15 years later, I start to write all these stories. And I was going around, you know, I'm in a every It looks like Germany bombed out in World War II, after World War II. So, I've got a camera, I'm taking photographs, and I'm, you know, uh, writing about poems. And that, that probably is how it affected me. But it didn't affect me for, for about 10 years. And Rudy Kaminsky and you know and Joe Ferrari, I knew him, but Rudy, you know, it's funny, I think about Rudy now. He was I was a Sunnyside boy, he was an Astoria boy. And uh we went to college together on the G. I. Bill. And what I do remember one day with Rudy Kaminsky, we're sitting outside waiting for a class. We were going to different classes and Rudy, you know, I'm struggling with my English class, trying to write something. Which I couldn't do, and and we said, "Jeez, I got an A in English." He said, "You know what I did?" And you know, we went to Queen's College. We were like old men. I was like twenty-six. He was maybe 25, 26. We were at the same age. And he said, "I got an A in English. I wrote about how to jump off uh, jump out of an airplane with a parachute." And they went crazy. The teachers, what a wonderful article! And so, so Moody couldn't understand why these kids and the teacher thought. Jumping out of an airplane back in nineteen fifty, you know, with a parachute was so exciting because nobody in that English class had ever written anything so real world like as Rudy Kaminsky,
0: and uh, of
1: course, uh, poor Rudy, uh, you know, uh, he didn't make it after the Twenty Third Street collapse. So, so that was uh, that was probably it, it. Took me a while to uh, to think about that, but I would almost put that up there with. Uh, I mean, I do think of that Worcester Street collapse, too. That, that was a horrible-looking collapse.
0: The uh,
1: 23rd Street collapse wasn't as horrible-looking as the uh, as the Worcester Street. All right, so now let me just say, I got loft buildings. You know, when I used to go to these loft buildings, you know, narrow streets, one day we have a fire in Hell's 100 acres. And, you know, the fire is blowing out the top floor of this loft building, top floor, and, and you know, The streets are very narrow down there, you know, and I see the deputy and the fire, you know, I'm standing by. He's got me, 33 inches, standing by. And we're actually trying to go up close to the the building across the street because these narrow streets, you know, say, if this wall comes out, it's dead. So uh, now, fortunately, we saw fire. Uh, The hose stream shoot out the window and knock the flame down. So, but, you know, and then I would be stretching hose uh, or carrying rolled-ups up, uh, my company would be, in these awful. The stairs were slanted, wooden stairs. Uh, and you'd look, and there were bolts of heavy bolts of cloth, paper, machines, you know, storage. So everything was fuel, uh, floor loads. You know, when we do inspections, they had floor loads, and we were concerned about the radar on these old, they were Civil War buildings. Uh, these hells, 100 acres, loft buildings, and they had cats by in front. So, you know, I, I thought one time, <clears throat> I'm going up a building. Let's see, <clears throat> geez, it's Harlem, at least you're saving people. <laughs> people in the building, in this one, I'm in this building, it's a bolt of cloth I'm saving. So uh, I, I thought about that, but, but to the credit, of them, now, now it's a big art district. All those machines and paper storage bales, goods were goods moved out. The artists moved in, and now it's a very fancy, sprinkled uh, art district. So called, so long. So Rudy Kaminsky. Uh, let's see. So we. So let's see. So so while I was down in '64, a new lieutenant, a new a new chief of department comes in. I mean, we had no. We didn't have much leadership in the fire department. You know, when I came in, when I come in the job, we had an old. Oh, white-haired chief. I can't remember. Tunis, I think, was his name. Then he left, and we got a band leader. The guy was in the band most of the time. And he passed the test. He became <laughs> the chief of the department. The guy from the band. So it wasn't much of leadership from the from the, from the the top. So anyway, 1964, this young kid, young deputy, John O'Hagan, makes uh, passes the chief of the department's list and becomes the chief of the department. Ah, he was in Rescue One. He was from Brooklyn, and Ninth Battalion. He had all the all the, all his uh, tickets punched. He was a pretty experienced guy. So Hagen uh, became the chief of the department, and then of course he opened the floodgates to uh, my friend John O'Regan from Thirty Truck, and told him, "John, we want you to write that ladders bulletin. ladders Three. What well, up until then, if you were in a ladder company." He did whatever the officer said, and sometimes it was a covering officer. He didn't know what to do to tell you. So we had more no standard operating procedure. You know, there was a lot of freelancing in, the, in a lot of companies. You know, the engines, you had to get that line there. That was it. I mean, you were pinpointed. But a lot of companies didn't have... Now some officers, like 43 Mike, your company, you know, the county, had he had his own uh uh procedures. They were good, and you had to follow... Captain Capobalada's Captain procedures, uh, but many uh, truck companies didn't have, uh, you know, in the slower areas, they didn't have officers that cared about firefighting. Uh, but uh, O'Regan writes this uh, bulletin about a lot of companies operating in tenement fires, and tenement fires were where people were dying back then. Now it's private dwelling fires. But back then, your tenement fires in Harlem and Bronx and Bushwick, Brooklyn, you know, uh, were the, were the places where people died. So O'Hagan opened the floodgates and ordered O'Regan to write this a training bulletin which started a real training. You could, you could almost uh, start the training information started in 1964 with O'Hagan. He started making training bulletins about firefighting. He had guys downtown working and then he had uh, 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 all kinds of training material Came out of headquarters now with this new chief, so he was very dynamic. Later on, he turned, you know, power corrupts. He turned very powerful and uh, fought the unions in, in his career. He got fired eventually in 1978. But anyway, uh, uh, he was the beginning of the training, the start of training in the FDNY. He allowed it, so uh, so that was it. And while we while we were down there, the hippie started. 60, I was down in '64. Something started happening. All these kids started coming down to the village, Greenwich Village. We were on Third Street, and you'd see them. You know, they were they were all on drugs, and they were sitting in... They were from all over the Midwest, and they, they were coming down to Greenwich Village. Bobby Dylan was his music was was uh, was popular. And uh, let me just move around here. So uh, the Greenwich Village scene. You know, I was part of it. So, so Michael said, how did you balance it with your family? You know, this is, uh, like the Beatles said, life is what happens to you in between the gigs. So well, life is what happened to me in between promotions. And down in the 33 Engine, my wife and I, uh, we started going out to some of the, yeah. the bitter end, these clubs down there listening to comedians. Uh, my, my my daughter was born in 1964. Uh uh, my son was, you know, my son was born in 1967. Uh, I got my bachelor's degree in 1967. So I was going to school. You know, I started going into the family. Uh, I, I And that was, uh, yeah, you, and, and, the, and the kids, working down in the village was very interesting. So I enjoyed that. So, uh, So in 1967, uh, after surviving the twenty third street collapse and uh seeing my friend uh Rudy Kaminsky die. Didn't see him die, but I know he died. Uh I went back to Harlem, you know, so I wanted to go I was sick of uh Health Hundred Acres and protecting a bolt a both uh bailed paper and bailed cloth. I wanted to at least do uh, uh do uh people saving. So so I got promoted out of there and I went back to the home. I got assigned to to, uh, to to do a 58 engine, the fire factory. Now, one of the reasons, again, when, when I got promoted in 67 from 33 engine, again, I went to Brooklyn. They sent me to cover in Brooklyn. To get, so I'm covering this 36th and 35th battalion, which is very interesting. Let me tell you what I found about Brooklyn. I covered in this 35th battalion. And that was like a throwback. I mean, Harlem and the Bronx—I can't—I didn't know the Bronx too much, but Harlem was 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 a, a laid-back, fired-up. Brooklyn was like the Marine Corps—the guys when you'd come to a a, a a box, they would get off the rig and run down the street, you know, searching for fire and run back. You know, that was—it was a very tight discipline. Borough, Brooklyn is, and, and and like somebody, you know, Tom Brennan said, most of the guys lived in Brooklyn. Nobody lived, not too many guys lived in Harlem. But the, but the, the Brooklyn was a very tight, very military, semi-military borough. I mean, and the bosses were tough. You know, I guess they were still upset over being merged with Manhattan back in 1898. There, there were firehouses There it still are. BFD, Brooklyn Fire Department. So they always felt separate. And, and actually until recently, I I was doing some, you know, you looked at many chiefs of department. They came from Brooklyn. John O'Rourke came from Brooklyn. O'Hagan was a Brooklyn firefighter. So a lot of Brooklyn firefighters still uh, went up the ranks and became the top commanders in the job. So Brooklyn was a different borough than Manhattan, that's all. Uh so now I'm, I'm so I'm back in Harlem, and I got back there thanks. I got back there July 1st, 1968, and I got back there thanks to the, to the, to the union. Uh, the, the city now started was really burning. In 68, you know Martin Luther King was shot, Robert Kennedy was shot. You know we had the 64 riots. You had the, uh, you know the. Uh, Everybody was angry up there. You had the Vietnam War demonstrators from City College. You had the Civil Rights Movement. Crime was rampant. City was uh, you had the NAP Commission. The cops were demoralized. Drugs, crime, and uh, a wide-open city. Violence, and people were fleeing the city. And vacant buildings were appearing everywhere. People, uh, middle class from Harlem. They fled just like the middle class from uh Brooklyn they were fleeing up to the suburbs, out to the suburbs, and they were leaving all these vacant buildings and then you had the great migration. You had people from the south moving back up into these half uh, inhabited areas and they they and the angry uh, militants with light fires in vacant buildings they was so angry so angry about the vacant buildings Arsonists. You know there was a game. Uh, the owner would have ten tenements in Harlem or the Bronx, and he the owner would say he would make the 100 grand each tenement, and then he sell them to his brother, his uncle, in, in Brooklyn, uh, for uh, 150,000 each, and they were going vacant, and then he would insure them for 150,000. Then the brother would send them back, sell them back to him for 200,000 and sure them up to 200,000 each, and they were burning them down. So arson was a big game back then. What stopped that was computers. All of a sudden, the fire investigators started to see, hey, Mr. Mr. Smith owns these 10 buildings in Brooklyn that burned down, owns the 10 buildings in the Bronx that burned down. Mr. Smith owns the 10 buildings in Harlem that burned Mr. Smith's got some kind of a problem here. That was one of the, one of the ways we stopped the arson for profit. Another way the arson was stopped. Don't forget this. I'm in the Bronx. And I've been to fires. And, you know, you would call an, it's a, this is suspicious. It was common. It's a, it's a suspicious fire center marshal. Marshals would never come while we were there anyway. So now we get a new fire marshal. And this fire marshal starts this program called the Red Caps. We all laughed. Red caps. The red caps. The red caps. They wore red baseball caps, like, you know, and and it said fire fire on it. And these red caps started responding to the players. Every time they had an all hands, all of a sudden the red caps are there, and I'm a a chief, and all of a sudden these red caps are bringing to the command post a guy in handcuffs. Chief, we got the guy. We got the. I never saw anything like this in my. 20-year career, every fire, they arrest somebody. So now I said, what's going on? How how come you guys, how come you didn't get them 20 years ago? Now you can always arrest everybody at at, at every fire I go to. He says, Chief, when we get there at the fire, the people are so angry, they point them out to us. That guy started the fire. Now, if we don't get there early (coughs) during the fire, and come two hours later, all the people went back into their apartment. They don't say anything. <laughs> but once they're there, when we get there quickly, they point them out and we arrest them. So now I would go to community meetings in the Bronx and the community board. There were only so many of these red cap fire marshals. And the community boards were fighting over these guys. What do you <laughs> want to get them next month? You've got to send them to us next month. They we go for a month. Into these different community boards, we had 52 community boards in New York City, and they all wanted these fire marshals. So, uh, so that so that got the that got the crazies. So the computer got the, uh, awesome for profit guys, and and the, and the fire marshals got the, the the rabble rousers and the crazies, uh, who lit fire. So, so that that was a pretty good thing in the fire. So now, okay, so we got the flame committee. So. Because of this awesome problem, uh, the, the union, you know, a, goes to the mayor and says, look, we need more firemen. We need more, uh, we need staffing. We need five firefighters on every, every fire truck. We need 40 more fire companies. And they proved the statistics. Every, you know, we were doing 10,000 runs a year. So there was no denying it. You know, and then the chief was saying, cancel that second alarm. Cancel that third alarm on the radio. You know, we didn't have uh, and then then they went down Then all we were required to send out a fire was one engine, one truck, and a chief. That's all we could afford. So that was the bare minimum. We didn't get three and two. So, uh, but, uh, so we got this flame committee with a bunch of guys from the UFA, to UFOA, and they bullied and told the mayor we need 40 more fire companies, engines and ladders, second sections, and they, the city complied. So I was, uh, I, oh, I didn't go to a second uh, section. I went to 58 Engine, which was a, you know, historically busy firehouse. But in that firehouse, they put another truck company, 26 truck So it was normally historically 58 Engine, 26 truck, and the flame committee got 26 truck, too, uh, put in there temporarily, you know, a couple of years to take some of the workload from the 26 truck. So, uh, so that was it. So plenty of unrest in the city, during my time at a fire factory, people flee into the suburbs and vacant buildings. I did a, I did a, I did a thesis on, you know, so so, um, you know, let's see. I did, I wrote a paper, when I went to college, I went back. i Remind me to talk about that thesis, but I did a thesis, uh, in Queens College for a master's degree, and it's four urban problems, in the fire service. And it was high-rise buildings, vacant buildings, garbage fires, and some other things. If you read them, you could. And I, the, the library has this master's thesis, and it's on that diamond plate uh, library. But it's the my master's thesis for urban problems of the fires, for urban fire problems or something. But but that what was going on in the cities? How the, how the cities were burning? and nobody had a clue as to what to do. But that, that was a, I read it, we read it recently. I said, geez, I was really depressed. You can see how depressed I was <laughs> I wrote it in 1978 when the city was uh, really, really in bad shape. Okay, so back to the, 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 the fire factory. Uh, so now I'm working up in the fire factory. Uh, and uh, of course I'm working with uh, Captain John Dunn. Uh, he was the captain of 26 too. Of course we got to know each other, his His name had an E. I uh, I had no he John Dunn, and he married a girl from Sunnyside Teresa O'Rourke. I believe I knew her as a kid and uh anyway, just like with uh, with the twenty third street and Rudy Kaminsky and with james wing uh John Dunn transfers from twenty six to a lot of one seventy five in Brooklyn and uh, he gets killed at a three story building fire right down he said. He was tangled up in a bicycle, and sitting in the burned-out room right next to a window. They just reached in and grabbed him, I mean, he was dead by then. But so that was another reminder of uh, the seriousness of the of the fire service. John Dunn uh, from Sunny from uh, you know one seventy-five truck. He died in Brooklyn, but I knew him from from uh, from working in Harlem. He was in two six two. Okay, and then one of the unusual. Uh, Assignments I had, which is really now coming back into vogue, was when I got there, assigned to the fire factory. they said, oh, oh, Cap, you have a new assignment up here. Uh, we're going to come up here and you have to do these full scale drills on the uh, riots. We had to come I was a command post company uh, when riots would occur. So when a riot would occur, uh, the, uh, all the firehouses in the local area would. Call a policeman, lock the firehouse, leave a police officer in charge, and respond over to my firehouse, 58 engine, at a big wide street. And they would respond out of this area in teams because they were throwing bottles and rocks and shooting. So they would respond only from a central area, my firehouse. And they would have one chief, one engine, one ladder. And they had to stay together. Nobody left the fire scene until the three of them were. Left together, they responded together, returned together. So that was a a big, major command uh, structure that I started to learn how to do. So uh, that was something. And you know, it's funny. uh, uh, We 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 had this, and they still have it. And now, with with all this rioting that's starting to rear its head again, you know, uh, that's how. The cities are going to have to respond safely if they uh, do start to have more riots, like we did in the in the seventies. Respond from these central areas, command post locations. But anyway, so I see I walk around Fort Totten a lot, and it's where the fire the fires training center is, and there's special operations that are over there. And I love walking around there, and I see all these. Rigs, buses, apparatus, and at, we didn't have any of that stuff back in back in uh, nineteen seventies. Uh, so after this one of these big riots up there, they they call this they call this uh, command post response unit, and they guys respond from six o'clock. They're prepared for all these sponsors and they're throwing bottles and rocks <clears throat> and there's riots and people run throwing all the garbage cans, cars tipping cars. So uh, the riots stop. They quiet down around two o'clock in the morning. In the morning, up in Harlem. So now the deputy chief says, "Okay, guys, there's about 50 firemen, 100 firemen there who 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 were dropped off there and beefed up manpower." had no rides home, you know. So now the deputy says, okay, guys, uh, you can take off now, go home. I said, well, wait a minute, what do you mean, go home? You got no buses? Did, did you see the streets here? They had no buses there. We had no transport. They keep saying, you just gotta go home, that's all. You know, we can't keep you here. So so naturally, that was a major uh, union <laughs> uh, issue. And now we have all kinds of buses and trucks, trucks to transport people. but." But the big story was John Cennino, he's a famous cook from the fire factory, and he had, uh, he wrote three cookbooks, you know, and John Cennino always bragged about this was his last supper meal. He said, I fed 50 men to 100 men, and it was up to 500 men, depending on how much John wanted to exaggerate. But John always (laughs) talked about his Harlem big last meal uh, dinner that he cooked for. A couple of hundred firefighters. But uh, he did. there were more firefighters than anybody in any firehouse, but maybe not as many as he claimed. But okay. So while I was up there, that period, you know, you you say to yourself, When was the climax of your life? What was the what was the most intense period of your life? I would have to say that it was that area, it was it was sixty eight to 73, my time in the fire factory. Because what I was doing there, finding fires in vacant buildings, the busiest I've ever been. Uh, I got a bachelor's degree in City University at 67. I got, I got a degree from a college. Uh, and uh, I almost got killed in a stairway collapse. So John O'Regan and I, we get a job... Uh, on 115th Street, and we stretch on my top floor. I stretch, we stretch the inches, quarters, and this is a strange fire, about three in the morning, and the fire is burning on the walls, the doors, the doors are shut on it's occupied buildings, the walls are burning, the floor is burning, and we're, we're waiting for water. Now, come with this tough fire for uh, Joe Valenti, he's my nozzle man. So, uh, three o'clock in the morning, we're tired. And uh, this fire is strange. And a guy opens the door, shut the door, shut the door. What's going on? So The the hallway is burning, the walls are burning. So uh, uh, we're, we're we're waiting for water. Three steps down on the top floor landing. So the top floor landing, and then you got another landing above us that goes up to the roof bulkhead. So we're waiting for water there. We get the water flaming hallway full of flame. No smoke flame. So we uh we uh <laughs> we get water drain it bleed the nozzle. So this tough Joe, my nozzle man, starts to stomp up the stairs. And I'm saying to myself, you know, we could hit, I'm tired. We could hit this from the stairway. So I stomp up right behind Joe. We make the turn on the stairway. We're knocking down the flame. We go to the back of the hallway where the stair starts to head up to, to the, the bulkhead, the, the roof, and he, he sees something in the floor. Joe sticks the nozzle in the floor at the base of this stairway that goes up to the bulkhead. Suddenly, the boom! <coughs> the whole landing, going up to the bulkhead, crashes down on the landing that we were just standing on. You know, <laughs> do we target my advice and hit it from the landing. We would have been crushed. I said, hey, there's got to be somebody under there. So we run, Joe and I run to the the top of the stairs. We lift up this fallen stair section, landing, section, and hot ashes start to pour out of the soffit as we lift it up. What happened was somebody kicked in a step and dropped gasoline down there. I said, put gasoline all over the top floor, but the gasoline was in with the carriage beams of the stairway above the socket and below the steps. You couldn't see it. But it burned the structure of the stairway leading from the top floor to the roof away. And that whole section, you on done. So, I mean, that was that was it. And so then I always say, an aggressive attack saved my life. Aggressive interior attack. And then John O'Regan, was at the fire too, and Johnson, you know, then they would have said, Well, they didn't have their helmets on. That's why they were killed. So, uh, but anyway, we survived that. And I got a teaching job. So, I'm staying in as a captain. Now, they called me up, and I wanted things. I always wanted something. I don't know. I, and my buddy said, You always wanted more. But uh, I got with G. Robinson. So, I got a call there. They would look at the teachers at the uh, uh, division of training at night. They had this vocational class where guys would come and and it was free. And I started teaching over there. I got a license, vocational, teacher's license. I had a four-year degree. <clears throat> and uh, so I was teaching over there. Uh, and uh, I got to learn how to teach. That's how I learned. But in that period, I went to Bacon Building fires, got my bachelor's degree. almost got killed in a stairway collapse. I started my teaching job at Division of Training. And... And and in nineteen sixty nine I take the battalion chiefs test and pass it. And of course the reason I passed the nineteen sixty nine battalion chiefs test is I had a study group in fifty eight engine with the fireman who was studying for lieutenant. So that helped me. So that's Mike's question said, What what how did I study? What was my study procedure? It was a class. I always study with a class. And uh it's funny, I, I remembered if whatever you, however many, if you if you study a 1,000 hours for the lieutenant's test, your first test, you start to run out of steam. The next test for captain, you'll only study 500 hours. Uh, and for, for, battalion, for, for battalion chief, you're running out of steam, you're only gonna 250 hours. And for deputy, you really have nothing left, so you, uh, you know, and that's what I kept saying. I'm just exaggerating with these numbers. I mean, numbers mean nothing. But you study less and less for each exam. You just can't do it. You don't have the intensity that you have when you want to be that one lieutenant. But anyway, so believe it or not, I passed the I pass the. Uh, test, and sure enough, I get a chance to take the deputy test. I get promoted deputy uh, that battalion chief. And that, and that same year, I take the deputy's test, and I pass the deputy. so I got two for one again. There. So, but that was my, that was the climax of my life. I mean, just being in engine, I got a degree in school, survived the building, the stair car, got started teaching, and I passed the deputy's test. It was big, big, big stress, you know, and at that particular time. So, anyway, so... Okay, so <laughs> here we are. Uh, now i will a BC, rising star. No, you think I'm a rising star? I thought I was a rising star. So you know, I'm drawing attention, I guess. So I'm a rising star. I'm, I'm on a battalion. I'm a battalion chief. I get promoted battalion chief in '73. Leave 58 engine, and I go covering, and uh, and I get a call from the deputy. That says, "Come on down to headquarters planning." And for six months, and then you pick your spot. You can pick your spot. I go down to headquarters for about a year and a half, and they sent me right back to Harlem. So I went back, I I went down there as a rising star, but I left there as a falling star. I get this assignment in planning to work with this uh, professor from Brooklyn Polytech, Paul DeSico, and he's, you know, Bushwick was burning down, and they were wood, three-story frames, but common cockroaches. So the knew what they needed to do, but they wanted to get uh, uh, scientific documentation. What is Paul DeSica from Brooklyn? Polytech uh, gets these fire protection people, smoke detectors, and he gets uh, uh, sheetrock companies to be able to put sheetrock between the cockroaches of these three-story road dwellings. And once the fire gets into the cockroach, we knew it would spread horizontally and burn every building down in the block. You know, there were open cocklofts, open roofs, common roof spaces. So, so this U.S. Gypsum said for three grand back in '73, we could put this derma fiber. We tested this derma fiber, like a, a fiber, fiber. If we could just snap those, tear the ceiling down, snap it in between the the beams, and it would stop the fire from spreading. And then we, in the sprinklers, we had awesome fire tests. We wanted to know whether a sprinkler system could stop an awesome bomb, fire bomb, it did. And and they documented all this stuff. I do these tests that were very interesting, but now I have to write a summary and I can't make this summary. So uh, I, uh, you know, I I'd go down there and after a year and a half, I have to get out of headquarters. I mean, it's just crazy and uh so I, I i feel like I got my tail between my legs, and I said i got can't write this summary and uh so uh I, I go but now while I'm down there, all hell breaks loose. we have the strike, we have our layoffs so i'm 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 in headquarters with the strike. Thank God I was in headquarters I hate to say that, but I'm down in headquarters, and uh Vizzini, the union guy and chief of the department who became very powerful and, and uh, get into a head-to-head conflict and, and there's a threatened strike. And so the, uh, the day of this, this threatened strike, the chief, uh, I'm in planning, he says, like right, come on down to uh, headquarters early and we're going to be ready for this strike. So. We're in a hallway, big hallway outside his office, and there's big citywide maps, one of Manhattan, one of Brooklyn, one of Queens, one of Staten Island, you know, one of the Bronx. So, uh, he assigns each one of us officers uh, to a map, and I get Manhattan. So he, he says, the chief says, we're in a hallway, one of the chiefs, and he says, as the companies, he, he's got yes, he pulls a, uh, a, uh, a recall in. So now everybody's called back into the firehouse, uh, and he uh, uh, he got these maps, and he says, "We're going to have a roll call of every fire gun. and if they go on strike, we want to get their number, and we're going to take action." Now the night before this strike, I go up to the fire factory. There's a party, there's a dance. So I go up to the most anti-establishment guy I know there, you know. Mike, you might know him, Bob Adrian, you know, one of the... Oh, yeah. Yeah, Bob Adrian, a weird guy. Spooky, we used to call him. So I said to to Spooky, (laughs) Spooky, "Spooky, you going to go on strike the night before? He said, hell no. He said, you kidding? I'm not going on strike. So now, the next day, I'm at headquarters. I'm in front of the Manhattan map. And 9 o'clock, the bells. going to... Now the dispatcher says, engine one, you know. Strike engine two strike ten minutes after nine the whole city is on strike out of out of now there's a couple of guys going back and forth, but the whole city in ten minutes was on strike now we were stunned, I mean everybody was stunned, so now I mean Gus Beekman was in the hallway with us, he was an assistant chief, so we turned to Gus and he and Gus says. Well, we've been threatening this for ten years. Now we finally got it out of our system. So that was it. So, of course, four years, four hours later, they got together with a court order, and and they got they got the uh, the firefighters went back to work. But it was a terrible time, guys. Today will go crazy if they talk about the strike. And I was, you know, it's fortunate to be down at headquarters, not have to choose. But um, anyway, so now I go back to spooky the next day. Hey, Spooky, what happened? I thought you said that you were not going to go on strike. Just, I wasn't going to go on with the four guys. I was working. We were not going to go on strike Twenty-six trips. But when O'Hagan calls in the recall and the firehouse fills up with everybody while the union delegate took over, he made the call. He made the shot. So, so that was a bad mistake to put the recall in, I guess. So who knows? But uh, anyway, that was uh, one of the big things. But it was a terrible time. Uh, the layoffs. That was a really the layoffs were worse than the strike. I always so I'm back in the I'm in a foot Battalion doing the layoffs. So uh, I remember leaving July 1st. It isn't not gonna be, they're not going to be. He's not going to lay anybody off. Boom! They lit up 2,000 cops and 40 in order to find I couldn't believe it. So now I go to work the next tour, and uh, so now all hands, Manhattan Box, whatever the box is. I go to the box. Guys, put out the fire. And then the entire force of our comes down, chief, we're going sick, we want to, we're, going, we're going sick. Holy Jesus, so get a medical officer up here. So now, this was a job action we had on our hands. So now the borough commander comes up, and he says, what are you going to do about this? I said, I'm not a doctor. The guys say they're sick, you know. So it got ugly. We had got, we got a big ugly, every single fire was ugly. You know, the guys put the fire out, but then they, they, they did their job action, and they went sick, so the medical leave skyrocketed, and it was a t- the only time I do remember that I did not want to go through a fire. I mean, I never wanted. To. And then, of course, uh, you know, slowly, slowly, it took a long time. Uh, it, things got back together. But, he, but even today, you'll see, go. I got laid off for a year and a half. It had to be terrible to be laid off. So, uh, but that was probably. I would have to say. The layoffs were the, were the worst of times. So let's see now. Uh, here, what do we got here? I had a midlife crisis. So, so I'm down at headquarters, strikes, layoffs. I couldn't write that assignment. So I go back to, uh, you know, the 25th Battalion with my tail between my legs. So you say, what was uh, what was it like in a 25th Battalion, <clears throat> 73 to 77? <clears throat> so my wife and I start going to disco dancing. That's <laughs> what so we did. We started John Trafalter came out with his movie so we learned how to do the disc the hustle and we started dancing all over New York City. He has to go to all these eighty uh, sixth street that was down all the those nightclubs down on
2: eighty sixth street in Yorkville. So uh, Oh yeah. And then
1: and what? What'd you say, Mike?
2: I what said talk? yes I Flemings there. and uh Flanagans and yep. I had all I thought
1: I had the bell bottoms and everything, but but I also, Mike, I also attended your roof roll Ceremony. I remember wherever it was, you got the medal for the roof rope from forty three mm-hmm. truck. Remember your beautiful yep. wife down there with your family. She was expecting, you know. Yep. So, uh, My
2: first child.
1: Yeah, yeah. Is that your first child. Yeah. So I had two by that time. But it was a beautiful day, and you guys looked beautiful
2: getting the award.
1: And uh, so where was that? Where, where, Mike? Where was that? Where, where did they have that ceremony?
2: At the Water Club. Oh, oh, that's even made it better. Yeah, yep, so at the Water Club. At yep. the
1: Water Club, and then uh, and then so so that was my twenty fifth retirement. So I I got my act together. I had my midlife crisis, danced it away, and then I got assigned. I got promoted to deputy chief in nineteen seventy seven. So now all of a sudden I got a shot in the arm. I got to be a deputy now. And I got back into the job, I go up to the Bronx, never was in the Bronx in my life. Uh, and uh, I'm starting to go to H-type buildings in you know, the Bronx. Was, Bronx was different from Harlem. Harlem had tenements, brownstones, stores. I went, you go to the Bronx, Bronx had H-type buildings which were two tenements put together, uh, regular tenements, private dwellings all over the place, factory buildings, road dwellings, there was no zoning up in the Bronx. You could build anything you wanted anywhere. So I got more experience like in private dwellings taxpayers. There were no taxpayers in Manhattan, you know. So I I, I really in, increased my my ability to you know, my my knowledge of firefighting when I worked in the in the 7th Division up there. So I wrote my first article in 1978 about the uh, uh uh, powerful war collapse. So, it's funny. so I go into the 7th Division story. So uh, my first day, I don't know anybody. The, the commander is on the phone with Frank Burns from the Bronx Borough, and he's saying, I don't give a I'm not writing any bulletin for the WNYF. It's not in my job description. Uh, I'm calling the union. I'm not writing any WNYF article. Slams the phone down. So I said, Jesus, I'm the Johnny Deputy. I didn't say anything. You know, I go got my way. I said, well, I guess I'm going to get this assignment. I better learn. So now I failed. I failed my, my writing assignment at headquarters now. I couldn't write that document about the Bushwick fire test. I left with my tail between my, leg and the mid, my legs in the middle of crisis. So now I'm saying, oh, Jesus. So now I have these, a couple of these H-type fires. So now one big fire I have with Pat Kilduff from the 18th Battalion. It's an awesome fire, floor collapse fire, or oh, fire on several floors. We have a missing fireman, you know, and uh, everything. But we, we do okay, nobody dies. So now I, I start to take pictures of H-type buildings, and I'm, I'm studying everything that's been written. You know, I uh, think a couple of bulletins. So I'm researching H-type fires, I'm adding my fire story, and I, I I say, well, I'm really learning. But I send it to the borough, figuring, well, I'm going to get a, a WNYF assignment to write. So I send it. So now Frank Burns, the assistant borough commander, uh, says to me, uh, no, Vin, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, the, the borough commander is going to write uh, Kane. Danny Kane is going to write a big bulletin, you know, like, Lot is three on H-type building. So i okay. So I don't, nothing happens. So then I'm uh, working up there, and one of my senior deputies says to me, he leaves, and he says, on the way out, he's leaving it from a night to I'm in a day to Oh, by the way, we had a cops over there in Manhattan, you know, store fire. So, okay, so he leaves one line, I get. So we do my work. I do my work. At 12 o'clock, I said to my driver, let's take a ride over. See, Harry's fire. Take a ride over to Manhattan. There's four foot of stone, ornamental stone, on side 100 feet. I said, get the double, get the uh, photo unit up here. Give me a piece of paper and pencil. So I start to diagram this five stores, and the, the, the ornamental stone, cast stone was tied together with bars, And when one part fell, they expected one part to fall. And he said, get away from that part. But when that one part fell, it was tied in with reinforcement, bars. it pulled the whole wall down. And it was like an overhang, corbel wall. And the whole wall came down like a wave. So so I get there, and I write this powerful wall collapse article. You know, I got all these great pictures, and... um, uh, so, in the back, in the bottom of the article, I said, well, now I'm a deputy now. Now I'm starting to see 23rd Street collapse is starting to come into my psyche now. So, I'm sitting I'm saying, Jesus, you know, the, the Bronx is full of broken collapse buildings. So, I'm saying, Who is responsible to safeguard firefighters at a fire? And they, so they don't get killed in a collapse like this parable wall that I'm writing the story about. So I say, look at the ultimate responsibility is the incident commander. The deputy, the buck stops with the deputy. He's ultimately responsible. But when the deputy puts a sector chief, battalion chief in one sector the rear or the side, uh, he's responsible for that rear or side. The commander can't see the rear or side. Well, when I put a chief at the rear of the building. That chief is responsible for all those firemen back there working from. You know, partially responsible. I've got the ultimate responsibility, but he shares some of it. And then when that chief's working in the back of the building, he's got company officers with with firefighters. Those company officers are responsible for four firefighters. They've they got a responsibility to safeguard those four or five firefighters get from getting killed. So they share some responsibility. And then the firefighters themselves, they've got to listen to their bosses, and they've got to they gotta comply with what the orders are. And they can't just try to sneak up and get in and freelance and get in these dangerous areas if the officers don't do that. So I put that on the back of the article. You know. So now I send in the article and I don't hear anything. So I uh I guess I sent it in, in April. So around in seventy eight. We get the we get the we get the war bombs collapse happens. You know, it's a truss roof killed six firefighters. And Frank his father is the chief of the department. So I get a call from out of the blue from Bernie Near I wrote a thing on puppet war collapse. So Bernie Near from the editor of WMF, calls him, Who the hell do you think you are, Chief Dunn? I said, What are you talking about, Bernie? I don't I didn't know Bernie Near either. So he said, the chief told me to stop the WOF and put your article in there, this issue. So I, I don't know Chief Cruthers. I don't know why he did that. Then I look at the article. I knew why he did it. It was not, that was a trust roof co that killed the firefighters. I wrote about powerful the war co-ops. But in the back of the article, I talked about accountability. We all share accountability. Safety is an accountability, a sharing team uh, effort. So Crothers got, you know, he was wrestling with who was accountable for that war bombs collapse. So he must have seen that. Now he added some of his articles to the reference of that article. So uh, they they published that. And then uh, unfortunately it was, you know, published because of the war bomb. But then, then all of a sudden the borough called me up. The chief Frank Burns said, hey Vin, you got that uh, article about the H-type building? We're going, to, we're going to publish that one, too. And then from then on, I was like a rising star. I had my star shining again. So then I got into writing for into WNYF. I, now I get this bug, and I finally learned, like I told my wife one day, I said, Pat, just something's happening. The, the words are coming from my head down my arm to the pencil. I'm not cutting and pasting anymore. So, uh, so now if you look at WNYF, from 19, 1978, my first one, to 1984, I think that was my last one. I, I, I own that magazine. I had the best articles. You know, I wrote about fire escapes. I wrote about renovated buildings. And uh, so so those from 78 to 84 was my, and I, and I actually, I went to Bernie Near, I went down to Bernie Neer, his office and headquarters in WNMX. And when we got the, when he calmed down, he wasn't mad at me. I said, Bernie, I'm going to write more articles for your magazine than anybody in the history of the fight about So I did. I wrote 12. And then Ron Spadafore beat me. He wrote 20. <laughs> and then I was just talking to Frank Lee. He wrote 27. So Frank, Frank Lee, the training chief, now the safety chief, he, he wrote, he's got, the, he's got the most articles written for W.N. I had the crown briefly with 12. Ronnie Spadafora grabbed it for twenty, and now Frank Lee wrote more articles for W than anybody in the history of the fireball. So that's all. So that's uh, So let's see. So I get my. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I get. We're gonna do. We're gonna do another. So I get the, so, so then. Okay. So then, things start to happen. Uh, I get caught, you know, because I'm writing. The writing brought me to the attention of a lot of people. I get a call from the National Fire Academy. They want me to come down and be a developer, to develop this course called Command and Control of Fires and Emergencies with these other chiefs from, from LA, from Chicago, from Florida. So that was a very interesting assignment. So we write these uh, this course called Command and Control of Fires and Emergencies and uh, from the National Fire Academy. That was a, uh, a nice thing. Then I get a call from uh, Chief Devine. Uh, he called me up. He says, you know, I have a friend in Chicago. He's looking for a high-rise expert. You know, actually, I, this phone call happened when I was working in the third division, not the seventh division. I'm on that line. I'm going, the third division, they called me up and they said, Chicago wants an expert from high-rise. So I said, well, you know, you, you think I'm an expert? And he said, yes. You know, he knew I could write from the seventh division experience. And when I got transferred down to the third division, you know, I was writing a couple of articles down there. So, so now I'm, I'm a Chicago consultant, you know, with their with their big uh, fires. One of the two of the big fires. So, so that was basically that's how my consulting started, you know, because of. Uh, the high-rise, and, and the high-rise are really, you know, nobody gets a consulting job for for um, private dwellings, I'm so, sorry to say, because that's where most fires are and most deaths are But the high-rise fires are what everybody is concerned about. That's what keeps the chiefs awake at night, the high-rise fires. So I, I wound up getting involved in this consulting. And I do remember, so the Chicago guy said, what's your fee? So I called up the corporation counsel, the lawyer from the New York City Corporation Council. I said, to, I forget his name. I said, well, what should I charge for for consulting fee? He says, well, he says a consulting fee back in the time, back in the 70s and 80s, was anywhere between $200 and $600 an hour. <laughs> I can't believe that. So I said, okay, I'll go in the middle. I charge 400 bucks an hour. So Chicago paid me $400 an hour as a consultant. And that's... You know now it's much more, I guess, but the, that's a lucrative part of uh, of the uh, of the. So so that 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 was because I oh so I now you asked me Mike you were you were inquiring about my big transfer from the seventh the Bronx to to Manhattan and I'm going to tell you how how that happened. So I'm in the Bronx. I'm I, truthfully, I'm in there seven years. i mean in that, 7th Division. I think I know about H-type buildings now. I remember one night I'm sitting in the office and I'm shooting rubber bands against the wall. Uh, so I'm saying, you know, maybe I should, I didn't want to go back to headquarters. That was out. I knew how tough that was. So, so then I read an article about making a horizontal move in a corporation. They said they recommend sometimes if you don't want to retire, make a horizontal move, go to a different division. So now I'm saying, you know, maybe I'd like to go down to What's different? It's midtown. And then actually, the chief was calling me up saying, Ben, we we want you down here. You know, he said, we want you down there for a couple of years and then make a staff chief. I said, hey, you can't learn anything down there in a couple of years. You've got to stay down there, you know, longer than that. Fires don't happen that regularly. So I was thinking about it. So anyway, so what happens is a guy reports a stolen badge. It was not a lost badge. He reports a stolen badge. So now, I don't know what you know. I must have said because it was stolen that uh, uh, I didn't press John. Maybe I did an admonishment, but I didn't want to give him the two-day fine because he said it it was either he was stuck up. He told me that's what his report said. It was stolen, not lost. So now I I don't want to give the guy the two days typical lost badge time. So now the borough commander and I start to go at it. You know, he wants me to, to, to give him that. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. So so we have a disagreement. So, so anyway, I'm on duty. And and actually, I hang up the phone on the borough commander. It was not Kane. It was another guy. So I, now I call up John O'Rourke. And I'm saying, John, you know, I'm in trouble up here. I think I want to go down to the third division. Can you help me out? He's the chief of the You He yeah, come on down. So I went down to the medical office the next day. So 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 I knew I was in big trouble up in the Bronx. So now I go to the medical office the next day, and report down there. <laughs> so I go into the office at 9 o'clock. The phone rings, and uh, Richie Fanning is in there with another chief. They're running the medical office at the time. And they said, chief, it's for you. I just walked into the office. Bella Cooler, the union trustee up in the Bronx. What the heck does he want? So, oh, Bella, how you doing? I knew him. He says, Chief, we're gonna pull the whole Bronx out. The borough, we want you back. In the Bronx borough, we want you back in Division <laughs> Seven. I said, Bella, wait a minute. There's no problem here. I wanted to make this move. Do not pull any job action. You know. So I thank you very much. Oh yeah. So Richie Fanning and that other chief get up the elite. I said, No, no, Richie. I want you to stay here. I wanted to make sure they heard my conversation, you know, with Bella McCool. I knew right. so, 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 so. I said, "Look, you heard that. I don't want any action." And Bella, calmed down. And so I said, "Look, I was thinking of transferring anyway, and that's that's I did." So I went down there, I and mean, it was a great. So I recommend that to any chief who's bored. Make a horizontal move. Go to another division. There's a resi. There's a commercial district. There's a residential district. You know, there might be a factory district. Make a horizontal move. And then you can go to training. You can go to an administrative position. You can go to, in the fire service, when you get tired, you know, we need leaders, but you can, I mean, headquarters, if you're a good administrator, you can, you have a great time down there because you've got plenty to administer. And, you know, and if you're a training chief, like Frank Lee, you know, you put your team together and, you know, it's very satisfying being the chief of training. So make a horizontal move. You know, don't, you know, pull the plug. So, okay, so, uh, anyway, I thank John O'Rourke and and, I, and the third, so I go down to the third division. I don't know anything now. I'm the, I'm the division, and I wound up, uh, Lou Ragusa was the commander, and about a year, he retires. Now I'm the commander down there, and I don't know anything. So I'm down there a year. from high rise, I know my other stuff. But fortunately, I have all these guys who I work with, Bob Cantillo, who were in the 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th Battalion. And they all knew me from home, So they took me under their wing, you know, and, and they told me the ropes down there. And we had training sessions. You know, down there, believe it or not, they do have these monster train, hands-on training sessions where we get the whole 1076 assignment. We get a vacant high-rise or a building under construction on a Saturday or Sunday. Take over the building. We have masks. We fill up the floor with smoke and a, a red light for the fire, and we uh, stretch the lines, and we do these training sessions, and it's chaos. I mean, without these training sessions, even with them, it's these high-rise monster office buildings, but not the, not the residential high high-rise. Residential high-rises, we can, we can do that. It's these commercial. If you've got a commercial high-rise without sprinklers, you know, these things are big open floor spaces, high ceilings, that you're not going to put out with a filled up with plastic computers. You're not going to put them out with a with a handheld holster. You know, you need sprinklers. You know, if you don't have sprinklers, New York City sprinklers uh, are not in all buildings, you know. Those old buildings, were, well, although Hagen did grandfather that a local or five, but still there's some owners who never sprinkled their buildings. So you've got these unsprinkled office buildings down in Midtown and Lower Manhattan that can create these monster fires. So, so that was it. Uh, So I, uh, so that was a great experience. And uh, let's see. So what else we got there? Oh, so so while we were down there, to to the credit of uh, Commissioner Safe, he was a tough bird. Rudy came in the job. So Rudy says, you know, and they 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 had a they had a. they did, had a dislike for chiefs, like middle managers. Rudy did not like middle managers. He put commissioner in charge and made the commissioner run roughshod of chiefs. They did not like us middle managers. So Commissioner said said, hey, you guys are so big. We want you to do these city national conferences, which was really great. You know, he said, we want to see if you really do know anything. So he started these very expensive seminars done by New York City fire chiefs. And um, we did them on high-rise fire strategies. We did them on terrorism. We did them on uh, special operations. And it was guys like Ray Downey, myself, uh, Tom Kennedy. We pulled in uh, Jerry Tracy. You know, we pulled in guys from all over the city. And we had these great... And even today, firefighters from all over the Countries, oh, you had these uh, seminars down there, and we invited. It was a nationwide advertising, and they would come in and get hotel rooms, and we would uh, entertain them. You know, down in the library, oh, we had these great seminars, and it was good for us. It made us more proficient in what we 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 bragged about in in the high rise of Manhattan. So so that was very good. I had my and the two big, the two big major high rise fires. I had one was the, the Fifth Alarm in the Empire State Building fire. That was a commercial office building, and actually I had a hell of a fire. In one Lincoln Plaza fire, Jerry Tracy wrote about that fire. That was a major monster fire. It was a wind driven high rise fire. Thirty minutes to get out of the hallway. Uh, so uh, uh, the, the, they were my two big fires. And then I did. It. I did a crew size study. <laughs> the most famous study I ever did was the UFA, and, and actually headquarters told me to go over to training. And we, we started testing and timing how long it would take an engine company to stretch a hose line, all kinds of two and a half engine three quarters, <clears throat> with five men and four men. And <clears throat> what we found out was that if you, you drop down one man, we called it a 20% reduction from from five to four, you increased the time of the host strike by 50 to 75. So that was, and the union still has that on, uh, on their line, and you see that on on the internet sometimes, crew size studies. And um, yep. so one more thing, and, and we're, we're going to wrap it up, but uh, I, I want to tell you, I think I take credit for NIOSH. You know, I was just talking to uh, Mike Richardson. You know, he's worked for NIOSH now, which is great. He's an experienced veteran fire chief. NIOSH took him aboard. Now, I was telling Mike, in my collapse book in 1988, I, I, and I used to go around and give lectures. You guys would say, you lost three firefighters at this collapse. And I, and I studied everything there was to study about firefighters fatalities. I'd never heard of this collapse. I rocked, uh, uh you know, like in Boston, you know, up there, they lost 12, 12, in Massachusetts, they lost 12 firefighters at Strand Theater. And it was nowhere written. So I write in my book, most fire fatalities are not covered by their chiefs because the chief officers and company officers are so stressed out that they're so angry or they're so guilty or they're so sad that they can't make it true uh, investigation of what happened. So there's no, there was no documentation of firefighter death, you know, in 1988 when I wrote my class So I get a call from the IAFF about 1992 or three or four, and he says, you know, we've got this new organization, uh, NIOSH, you, can, you know, NIOSH is going to investigate firefighter fatalities, and we want you as a consultant. I was their first consultant. They would make, in '94. They would do these investigations, come in from the federal government, these engineers, and they would investigate the fatality, and they would send me the uh, the report, and I would you know tweak it a little bit. They were pretty good reports, but a lot to be desired. Now we have guys like Mike Richardson in there. He's a fire chief, you know. And that was a complaint. I love NIOSH reports. Without a NIOSH national. Occupational, National Institute for Occupational Safety has it. We would really have no documentation of firefighter death. So NIOSH is is one of the greatest things the fire service ever got. And we now have chiefs in there, which we needed. Mike Richardson is one of the chiefs in there. So, uh, but again, I'm bragging, but, but I think I had something to do with NIOSH because the union used my book, Collapse of Burning Buildings, to show that I said the reason we don't have any documentation of deaths is because the commanders at the scene are so distraught they can't objectively look at the fire. So, uh, so that was it. And so, Zombreg, you know, so so that's so, so what's my legacy. We're going to conclude it. And now, my legacy collapse of burning building It's still hard to figure out how nobody wrote anything about collapse in the fire service because we were dying by building collapses for centuries. And uh, I guess maybe the 23rd Street Collapse was one good thing that triggered me to write that book. So that's one of yep. my legacies. And uh, I am bragging about NIOSH, a crew size study is a legacy. And I, what I'm really doing, there was no document, there was no foundation to be a profession. You know, but to be a profession, I, you know, I studied about engineers, and a profession needs a body of knowledge, and the fire service in the 1950s and 60s had no body of knowledge. The Fire Academy, National Fire, came about in the 70s. O'Regan, Oregon, and we started writing training bulletins in the late 60s, 70s. Before that, there was no body of knowledge. So I'm continuing the body of knowledge, the development of the body of knowledge that the National Fire Academy has started, that John O'Regan has started. And other people like Brullesini has started, and anybody who wrote it, Charlie Walsh and O'Hagan, who wrote books, we are leaving a body of knowledge uh, for the fire service because we can't be called uh, we can't be called a profession if we don't have a body of knowledge. Well, I'm adding to that. So, uh, so you want to ask that, Let me tell you the last three things which are going to tear up everybody. What was your last question, Mike? You know what the last question that you asked me? What's the problem with the fire service today? What was that?
2: Yep. Yep. Okay.
1: question. I hate to say it, but this is it. The three big problems with the FDNY is diversity. I mean, the city's changing. And, and you know, when I came in the job, it was Irish and Italian firemen. Now we've got Hispanic, Blacks, we got women in the fire service. But diversity is a tough pills to swallow. That's one of the things that are roiling the, not only the fire department, the whole city is is, is getting uh, upset over it. The second thing is politics. We we don't control our own job. We, you know, the police department, they have their commissioner. They have a police officer as the commissioner. We have not you know, the best periods in New York City were when we had fire chiefs as commissioners, when we had Tal Cassano, when we had uh, Tony Fusco, they were the great years. When we had John O'Regan, despite... Uh, uh, he, he became the commissioner. But, all right, bad things happen there. Uh, but politics, we don't control our jobs. We need the fire commissioner's position. That's got to be somebody from the fire service. That's another problem. And finally, assimilation. We're still struggling with the assimilation of the EMS. I mean, that's still, uh, you know, pot boiling. I mean, Dan Nigro helped that assimilation when we joined with the EMS, but that's another thing that is, you know, filling up the fire service. But, but let me tell you something. Uh, we are still the best city agency in New York City. We, are, we, are, we have a better agency than the police department's got our problems in spades. You know, the teachers' union, and teachers, bureaucrats, don't compare to what we have in the fire service. We have. Nobody recognizes. Nobody wants to recognize uh, because we're a conservative organization. But we have a pretty good organization. I remember I was working in headquarters. My final statement is a, a commissioner called me into the office. I'm working in planning. And he says to me, you know, what's with the fire service? We broke every city agency in this New York City except the fire. We broke the teachers. We broke the police. We broke... But we could never break the fire. And the fire service has a very tight culture because of our firehouse. I think, now I'm I'm doing my views, but but, but he said we broke every city agency but the fire. And I don't think you'll ever break the fire. And the fire morale goes up and down. Right now it may be down, but it goes back to the normal, you know. The, it will go back to their normal efficiency, and it's pretty high when it's compared to any other agency. And when they send out those, when they send out those uh, uh, surveys, the fire service always comes out as the most efficient, most loved city agency. Anyway, I'm going to leave you with that, Mike. And
2: Mike, Mike, how's that? Okay? I think that's great, Chief. Uh, I would just like to say one more thing uh, from me uh, as we close out. And uh, that's, well, first off, the last question really is, uh, before I say what I want to say, how can our people get a hold of you? If they want to get a hold of you, how can they get you? What's your website? Okay, so,
1: uh, so let me tell you something. I've got an amazing amazing if I do say so myself Facebook page. It's called on Facebook Vincent Dunn's Fire Battle Space. Every single night I post a piece from my my uh, memoir. I post a poem from Susan Mojger about a fire scene from Maddie Daly. I post a piece from one of my battle space books and I post a piece Question and answers for my skyscraper book, Vincent Dunn's Fireball Space. I got a couple of thousand followers in there, but that's where I'm pushing all my stuff. Uh, and if you want to, they want to get a hold of me. It's you can you know Facebook. We got the message there. Yep. But you also get Vincent Dunn at Earthlink.net. My email is Vincent Dunn at Earthlink.net. N-E-T. But if you go to Facebook. Vincent Dunn's Fire Battle Space. You get all of my data, all of my books and stories, and you uh, can message me. Everybody messages me there. So VincentDunn at EarthLink.net and on Facebook, it's Vincent Dunn's Fire Battle Space.
2: Thank you, you, Chief. Now, what I was going to say, go ahead, Michael, you got something to say first?
0: Oh, no, I... I just want you to know, Chief, um mine'll be short. That was phenomenal. That was a blessing to listen to. Um I, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep this recording, Chief, and I'm gonna listen to it again and again. And it it's a privilege and an honor to hear the steps that you've taken and the impact you've had on this incredible calling of ours and I have personally benefited. Um I just wanna say um that what a What an absolute blessing just to walk through time with you and and enjoy the things that you've done. Um, Thank you for everything. I'll tell you one of my favorite things you've ever said, Chief. Um, This might seem odd to people, but the last time we interviewed you, I just just thanked you for all you've done and and being an icon in the fire service. And you just, without even thinking about it, you said, ah, Mike you know, I'm going to get off this radio show. I'm going to go into the kitchen and my wife's going to say, Hey, go take out the trash. I'm just a guy. And, uh, uh, that I'll tell you what, that is, that is just to me, emblematic of the, the, there's a handful of people who have impacted this craft of ours in a significant way. And it's fascinating to me that most of them are just like you. They're humble, uh, they're passionate, but they're humble and just proud to be firefighters. And, and sir, for what it's worth, I am honored to know you and honored to be a part of this calling with you. Thanks for this, truly. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, man. And, and you
1: got to send me and in one of those uh, Vincent Dunn at Earthling or find the Vincent Dunn's file, Send me your address. I'm going to send you out that bounce Facebook with a nice autograph on it.
0: So you, gotta me, ah, you got to send. Ah, All right, I so appreciate give a, it, sir. You got
1: to send me the address in, in one of those in one of those uh, uh, venues.
2: And Chief, I just want to say thank you. you. Yeah, I want to say thank you you from me because.
1: uh,
2: Okay, but I also want to say thank you from me personally, because I don't know if you remember this, but the impact you had on my career when I was a young fireman, and after Hackensack Ford where we lost all of the firemen, I wrote something on rib teams, and the fire department said similar to some things they probably said to you what is this dumb young fireman thinking about these things for and they yeah. filed it in the round file cabinet and yeah, yeah. you took it and got it printed by harvey eisner in firehouse magazine yeah, and started Good. god bless him and started me yeah. on this career of teaching and it ha- if it hadn't have been for your mentorship and your yeah. friendship and you're being a leader, I might not be sitting here today do interviewing you. So thank so, you from the bottom of my heart. You.
1: Well, this is very nice. And I got guys I could say the same thing about. So that's what we all do. We're standing on the shoulders of, of giants. That's, that's all I can say. I've stood on the shoulders of the giants that inspired me and did for me what I did for you, and you will do. I'm sure you're doing for, for other firefighters rising up the ranks now. So that's why well, they were able, never able to break the fire service culture.
2: <laughs> well, thank you very much. We appreciate okay. it.
1: Good night, guys. Send me those
2: addresses. Both of you. I will. Good night. Will do, Chief. Thanks a lot. Good night. Bye.
0: <laughs> Holy smoke. That was, uh, Michael, how long we've been doing this radio show? <laughs> years uh, and years and years. Years and years and years. <laughs> Good Lord. That was unbelievable. That was absolutely. That was spectacular, man. Good grief. I have, I have
2: three pages of notes. Oh my god. dates, I'm gonna look yeah. up, and I'm gonna, and stuff. And I mean, stuff I wrote down just thinking about it. When he was talking about, oh yeah, we did drills because we had to go to the uh, the training academy. Used to be on the calendar in the firehouse. Rock alert. You had to study your mask procedures, and you had to study the things, and all this stuff that we went through with. And it's just so hysterical. So yeah, and I remember the red caps driving the fire duty out of the out of the, the certain areas of the city when the red caps came, fire duties the guys transferring. So just unbelievable stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I all I can say to our listeners is, you know, we we do take this pretty seriously. Mike and I do. Um, we did not want to do long ago when we talked about doing a show, we really genuinely wanted to get you really good people and really let them tell you about their stuff. And uh holy smokes. Um I hope that that, I hope that that stroll through our history and that passion that just came through on every step when he talked about what he was doing, you can just see the passion and the commitment and, you know, getting punched in the face and getting back up and having this happen and that happen. And Oh my gosh. I mean, there's just a, there is literally a doctorals treatise there on a way to navigate a career and in the, in the heart that you should have in pursuing what we do. And let me tell you something, man. If that didn't fire you up, if you weren't inspired by that, I'm pretty sure there's other people that are hiring in other places, and you ought to go check them out. Uh, for, the, for the firefighters on this radio broadcast, that got your blood pumping, your heart pounding, and I'll tell you what it said to me step up and do better. <laughs> do better. So, wow. you know. Do better. <laughs> yep. Yeah, do better, man. <laughs> and don't be
2: don't be don't be afraid don't be afraid of yourself.
0: Yeah. Man. You know,
2: just mm. do it, man. Unbelievable.
0: Well, my brother,
2: we've been on this uh, this is probably one of the longest ones we've done in a long, long time.
0: Yo, oh, I did. I felt like we just started, man. I was going to tell him I got 10 more questions, but <laughs> He was probably talked, he was probably talked out. That was pretty good. Oh my God. Oh, I'm saving these notes. That's for sure. Oh, well, cool, man. Michael. Well, uh, God bless brother. Um, I'm, uh, as always, I'm privileged to walk at your side to do these many cool things we get to do. And I know uh, I didn't exclaim it cause I didn't want to interrupt him, but when, you know, he said, you know, others have done it for me and I did it for you and I'm pretty sure that you're doing it for others. I just wanted to say, yeah, that's true. Mikey's doing it for others, all right. So, uh, brother, you have kept the legacy going, and uh, it's just a privilege to to do this with you, my friend.
2: I appreciate it, brother. Thank you. Um, God bless each and every one of you out there, and stay safe in this noblest of professions. Thank you.